0: reading it. It's in Jeremiah chapter 29. There's a black Bible in front of you, page 779. If you want the little cheat sheet there, you can turn toward that. Hopefully you have your own Bible. I'd be happy to give you one if you're interested and don't have one. And I encourage you to keep, keep your thumb uh, on that page and, and take a look at it uh, this morning so you can refer back to it. So it's good, good to look at. I have a few PowerPoint slides, but not too many today, so uh, go ahead and open up your Bibles, whatever you may have in front of you, to Jeremiah chapter 29, and that's page 779 again. So let's begin by reading this, and then we'll take a look at it together. We'll begin actually in verse 4. For Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to you, to bring, back, to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come to me and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And the verses we skip give you the context for this in in verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Babylon. So that's what this is about here's a letter to these exiles if you were here last week you know that we opened up the book of Jeremiah as a church many of you are familiar that we are reading through the Bible chronologically. And now we're at this place where a lot of the warnings that had come to the people that if you don't return to me and don't walk in my ways, eventually you're going to be uprooted from Jerusalem, this place that had been promised to you. If you look back in Genesis and you're going to be carried into exile to a a city that throughout the Bible stands for everything opposite of God, you're going to be carried off to Babylon. You'll be in exile. And Jeremiah is a prophet. He tells God's word to the people, sometimes not very popular. He's mistreated quite a bit uh, along through the book, as, as you'll see as you read. Who's going to declare to them this message? And he begins doing that before they fall to Babylon, and then actually during that as well. And soon they're, they're, they're taken away. The Babylonian policy was not to relocate everybody primarily those who are gonna be influencers so that they could inculturate them and begin making them sort of more Babylonian along the way and some would remain back in that homeland as well. So this letter is written to those who've been taken off and have been robbed of their homeland and in a place that's very unsafe and known, unknown to them. This is a letter to those who are living in exile. And the theme seems to be in general as we read this entire message from Jeremiah, is make the most of your time when you're in exile. I don't know how many of you experience this. I know we have some people from other nations here too. And perhaps you've been in a situation where you are relocated to a completely different culture. Maybe the language is different. The food is different the policies and procedures, the government, what's expected of you. When you grow up in a particular culture, you have no idea how many things just you breathe in through the air, and then it's just the way things are until you go somewhere else. And the way things are for you are very, very different. I I lived overseas for seven years and I got to experience some of that uh, as well. It just, the way of doing things is very, very different. And it can be kind of difficult, especially if you're forcibly placed somewhere else. Most of us probably, if we've had an experience like that, decided on some level that we're going to go and do something different. These people did not have that choice. Now, I grew up in the Cold War era. I was born in the 70s, and everything in my life growing up was America versus America russia the ussr and it's just all the movies all of the discussion all of the fears were what are the what's the soviet union going to do to the united states does anybody remember the movie red dawn i have a vivid memory of that came out in my teens to, Story of a high school out in Colorado, and they 're just going to school one day and you look up and there 's parachutes dropping in and the communists have arrived in this little mountain village in Colorado, and they 're going to take over this is the storyline of every every one of these <laughs> things too you know they 're going to take over and uh, make the united states and so it 's Patrick Swayze and others they escape and they You know, go commando and they rescue everybody and... Because if you're, you know, if you're from America, you're from the United States, you know, this is is our homeland. And somebody who's going to come in and invade us, we're going to rise up against them. Otherwise, we'll have to submit to everything they want. And we have no more control. And we'd be living in exile, even in our own country. Now, that's from an American perspective... Of course, we know that other nations have had that very thing actually happen to them. Nobody wants that. You want the freedom, the safety, the security, the assurance that comes from living in a place where you know, hey, we can make a living, we can move forward, and we don't have to fear about the next generation. Our kids are going to be okay. That's why the suburbs were developed, right? A safe place for our kids, And that's understandable. Nobody wants to live in exile. And God has been warning his people that if you don't change your ways, this is what's going to happen. And we here get an inside glimpse, not only of the process, but now as it's transitioning. And the southern two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, the north have already fallen back in 722. This is 586. They're carted off to Babylon. And those people, imagine you're one of them who are being relocated to a place where you feel like you have no control, you have no certainty of the future, you have no idea what's going to happen next. Those are really uncertain times. How am I going to live during this time? Now, I want to suggest to you that that's probably not a bad way for us just generally to speaking if we're people who are walking with Christ about our time here on earth, even in places where we feel safe and secure as well. The, the Bible in the New Testament uses a lot of language. Peter says we're sojourners. We're just passing on to something else. There's the heavenly Jerusalem that we long for at some point in the future. Paul says we're citizens of heaven. <laughs> I mean, obviously we have a citizenship in a particular nation, but no matter what that is, there's a bigger city that, to which we belong, the city of God. And we have... A citizenship that's there so we're informed by the practices of that kingdom not just the nation where we live some people have tried to give terms like resident aliens to those who are followers of Christ no matter where you happen to be you reside there but you're not really of that place either in a sense we're living even as if you're a follower of Christ in, in exile as it were I mean. This is not our final resting place. This is not the place where we really identify and belong, although it still informs how we ought to live. So I think there's a sense in which as we read this letter and just take a a brief look at it, it's describing, if you're a follower in Christ, the way we can think about the communities in which we live. I would also argue from an existential perspective, an experience, kind of expect. There may be a time in your life when you feel like you're living in exile. You have absolutely no idea what's going to happen next. Everything is out of control. Things are not going the way that you expect them to go. And you feel like you're uncertain and unsafe. That's living in exile. That's the feeling. That's what it's like to live in exile. And so in that respect. Jeremiah's words to those who are actually in exile. Becomes words to us. Either who are followers of Christ. Or feel like we're living in that space as well. What do we do? And the big theme of course here. Is, as I've already said. is make the mo- It's not to be wasted. Make the most of that time in exile. And he says specifically this a couple things. In verses 4 through 6. He says, be productive. You know, wherever you happen to be, this is God's design. Isn't it interesting in verse 4 that he says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile. Whose design is this? God himself is orchestrating it. And it seems like it's, even if it's a direct result of your mistakes, which oftentimes living in exile can be or feel like, God's not wasting that. He, make the most of that time. And here he says, don't fail to be productive. I mean, look what he, what he tells them to do. Build houses, in verse 5. Settle down. Plant gardens. And eat what they produce. In other words, don't just sit there. And yes, there's a lot of misery and hardship as we'll look at lamentations. And you need to mourn the losses and the shifts in life. But don't stay there. You still, you gotta You gotta be productive. I mean, God's designed us to that. One of the the problems, I think, with living in exile is that you can just sit there and think how awful this is all the time. And it sucks the life out of the very thing that God has called you to do, which is right in front of you, even if you don't like it. Plant gardens. Be productive. Build houses. Settle down. That seems kind of strange when God's carried us off to Babylon as a people. Make the most of it. I mean, don't, don't stop doing what you were doing back in your homeland as well. Marry and have sons and daughters. So obviously he has a view to the future. You know, continue to do the very things God's designed you to do. So they too may have sons and daughters. Increase the number there. Do not decrease. Don't just sit there and feel sorry for yourself. I mean, there is a, there is a, a time and a place As we'll see a lot of weeping, a lot of mourning, a lot of wailing. You need to live in that some of the time, but you've got to, well, you could put it this way. You've probably heard this phrase, bloom where you're planted. That seemed like an appropriate phrase for what's going on here. You got gardens, you know, instead of sitting there and thinking about, oh my goodness, Jerusalem. I wish I was there. You can do that, but you spend your whole time looking back. There's Babylon right in front of you, even if it's a, a pagan city. What are you supposed to do? Bloom where you're planted. This is where God has you. Make it purposeful because otherwise despair could overtake you. And it's even more than that. It's not just kind of like, okay, fine, I'm in this place. I'm going to go ahead, put my nose to the grind, just, you know, be productive and grit my teeth and have to do it. It's, It's not just that. There's, there's kind of a, a theology, a, a vision that we have of the place where you're at that's bigger than that because he doesn't stop. He says, seek peace in verses 7 through 9. And more specifically, seek the peace of the place where you are. And look what he says, verse 7. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Even when you're living in exile, it's not like you're just praying for the total destruction of the place where you are. (laughs) I mean, God's going to take care of that in his own time as well. He says, you're living in exile, seek the peace of the place where you are. And that word peace, as you probably know, is shalom. It's like seek shalom in the Hebrew. Shalom is a loaded term in the Bible. It's a huge attempt to describe a total package. It's God putting back together a broken world. And you're supposed to seek that wherever you are. Yeah, it's like you look at the brokenness in the place where you are, whether it's your family or community or whatever, and you start seeking ways that you can begin patching that back together with where God has put you and the influence you have. And it could be just, just living quietly and working hard. One of the things I think we tend to do, you know, we say we're a follower of Christ and you're just going to a job and you're like, I'm just getting a job to get money. And that's true. It's a very practical function, but it's way more than that. You're not there by mistake. You have a unique opportunity in wherever you happen to be to to leverage in such a way, like Peter says, live such good lives among the pagans that they're going to see how you respond to things and they're going to glorify God. They're going to say, wow, you... People who identify with Christ and are going off to work ought to be hard workers. They should have integrity. I, as a chaplain for Mason City Police and Fire, um, they invite me to pray at city council when I'm on call, which I was for this month. So just this Monday I go and I pray at city council. Um, Interesting, you know, uh, mix there of church and state and what does that look like? But there I am and they're asking me to pray. And I just prayed, I prayed for two things. I prayed for integrity, was one of them, that our city leaders and those who are on the front lines like others, even in our congregation, you know, we have a policeman, that they would act with integrity. Even the people who are balancing the budget and answering the phones and doing city planning have integrity. And that's actually a prayer, something that I'm praying as somebody who would identify as a Christ follower I can take the integrity I have to my nine to five. That was one, but the other was for wisdom. Because there's a lot of times in, in work environments where you're like, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. And maybe it's kind of bland, and you're like, oh, I could deal with some excitement where I'm actually praying for wisdom. Okay, fine, keep working with integrity. There's probably a time I'll come up when you say, this is a hard situation. I don't know what to do. And pray for wisdom. And the beauty of this wisdom element is it's not just you and Jesus in a closet talking to the Holy Spirit, which is great. You've got a community, too, though, of other people who are trying to make decisions in the context of life, whether it's family, work, play, whatever it is. This is why we've been designed. He's writing to a people here. It's not just you individually. It does include you. It's more than that. What does it look like for us to seek the peace of the place where we're at? Shalom. All the brokenness. We are agents that God is using wherever we happen to be to try to rebuild a broken world. And it doesn't matter if you're in Jerusalem or Babylon. If you're in Mason or Madison. If you're in Hong Kong or Peoria. Isn't that a place? Okay. I don't know how that came to mind. It just did. Is there somebody here from Peoria by any chance <laughs> that'd be amazing it doesn't matter where you are that's why this is such a universal message i can say a lot more about that but let's move on next he tells these people who are living in exile make the most of your time be productive seek peace and rest in God's plans look at verses 10 and 11 This is what the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I'll come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Now, these false prophets that were talked about in the verse just before, they were saying things like, you know what? Don't listen to this 70-year thing. This Jeremiah guy's a nutcase. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Everything's going to be okay. This is a two-year deal. You're coming back in two years. Don't worry about that. And those were false prophets. Jeremiah says, no, this is, you're going to be there 70 years. 70 years is a long time. Yeah. Who's older than 70 here this morning? Uh, no, nobody? We do have some people older 70 who occasionally, tempt, but you're not here. Does your life feel like it's gone on for a little while? Even if you're 15, like, oh my goodness, how have I lived this long of a life? There's so much... Collected knowledge I've gathered in 15 years, you know, and then 30, and then 45, and then. Seems like a long time. And those people probably were thinking, as certainly those who are in exile, can I wait? I mean, what if you were told right now, 70 years you're gonna be living somewhere else? You, You might be thinking, that's a little overwhelming. You know, for some of you who have a two year job assignment, you're like, ugh. Mason, Ohio, how can I be here for that long? 70 years. And God is saying, no matter where you are, you feel like you're living in exile, you've got to rest in my plans. I've got one. That's a big message of the Bible. This isn't a mistake. Those promises may have seemed hollow at the time. Seven years is a long time. Of course, it's not nearly as long as the unfolding promise of Genesis 3.15. If you're familiar with that, when God had created things and uh, sin enters the world, and he says, I'm going to send a Savior to fix this all. That was thousands and thousands of years ago. And the people are waiting for this Savior to show up. Where is he? And these people were included in that too. Really? Are you really sending somebody because it feels like we're living in exile? Oh, He's coming. He's coming. In fact, you get hints of that if you've been reading through Jeremiah 30, 30, in the 30s, he starts saying, you know, I'm going to make a new covenant. I'm going to do something new. There's going to be somebody whose blood seals once and for all this problem of sin that we have. He's coming. This is a little bit of a glimpse of the kind of exile that one's going to go through that's not just the feel of 70 years, but the full weight of everybody's sin on his shoulders. That's real exile all of your brokenness, all of your pain. There's one who's going to seek shalom, the peace that can only be gained through death. And he'll take on. And that's what they're waiting for, for hundreds and thousands of years. So in in that respect, 70 is not very long, and probably neither is the exile you are experiencing. But it's still a very real exile, right? And you still have to know, is God really in this? Is he really for me? Can I really move on? And this letter to Jeremiah, to the exiles, is saying, yeah. Just make the most of your time in exile. Trust that God is still with you. The book of Proverbs puts it this way. You're probably familiar with this. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all of your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. No matter where you are. This is, this is a hard issue like we talked about last week. Where are you willing to say, even when you feel like you're living in exile, okay, God, I know you got this. And he gives a word of assurance here. And some of you are very familiar with this verse. In verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. You may not know the plans that he has for you, but he does. And that's where you have to rest, especially when everything around you is Babylon <laughs> and you don't see any 70 years ending anytime soon. What do you do with that? When you're living in exile, you've got to hear the word of a God who says, I know. I know the plants I have for you. There is a, there's a tapestry I'm weaving together m- much bigger than just you, but you're in it. I've got, I know the plans I have for you. And they're, they're good plans. I mean, at the end of the day, they're plans that are gonna, though they are pressing and molding you, they're good. And that is something that only people who know Christ can rest in. Otherwise, you just don't know. There's no assurance. God's giving that word of assurance to his people plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. You're living in exile? You have to know that word. And the last thing he says in verses 12 through 14, you're not just seeking shalom as something that's an objective out there, but you're seeking God himself because he's the giver of it. Verse 12, then you'll call upon me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. You know, it appears that these people needed to be stripped of all of their self-reliance and all of their idolatry, worshiping something other than God, who had called them to himself before they finally seek God. I mean, God's saying, you know, the the problem is, I've been telling you, seek me. You won't listen. Now you're in exile. Are you listening now? (laughs) And of course, you can still say, nah, 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 nah. But he's like, I'm calling you, even in this, to me. Are you willing to seek me now? I'm here to be found. It's kind of like the Acts 17 thing. There's no mistake. Everybody who's, you know, wherever you happen to live, there's no accident to that. Kind of like this Jerusalem to Babylon thing. Why? So that you'll seek him and find him. He's not far from each of us, he's there. It's Acts 17 saying the same thing here. Now, especially when you're living in exile and you're ripped of all your self-reliance and all the things that you were building your life upon, you finally see these are just empty cisterns. They're broken. They're not getting me anywhere. You know, the thing about cisterns, and we talked about this last week, there's a picture of one, right? It's, they were designed to, to hold water. And over time, if they were not constructed right, they'll start cracking. And the, the water will seep out. But even broken cisterns, I mean, the, the tricky part is they do hold some water. They just, it's so subtle. They're losing water. You just kind of fill it back up. and lose. But they're, they're not working right. That's exactly like what, what the Bible calls an idol. It's a, it's a, sometimes it can be a good thing. And it seems like all is well. But it's getting stagnant. It's not this stream of living water. And you're constructing broken cisterns. And this nation had been doing that for years. And God is saying, until you're in captivity, apparently you're not going to take a hard look and say, I guess we've been doing this wrong. Maybe we should seek something else. This thing that's called str- the, the streams of living water. This God who knows me exactly, the things I wrestle with, the way I think, what's important to me, because like Jeremiah once said, I formed you and I knew you in your mother's womb. Who else but the creator and designer knows how you function? Where do you go when your car breaks down besides a, a mechanic? You might actually get the manual out and see and look and read first, like, oh, the people who made this, I guess they know what they're doing. You put oil on a car. Who knew? That's why it's, you know, fuming on the side. Replace the oil. Because they designed it that way. But, of course, we in our broken cisterns know better. So we'll do it a different way. Eventually, it's going to catch up with you. And this is the message of Jeremiah on the whole. There these two, you've turned away from God and you've created your own pathways. And you can do those. And they'll work for a while. Or you'll convince yourself they are. God says, come back to me. I'm the one who you've been designed to come to. I'm the one who will give you the full assurance that even in the midst of exile, you can still be productive. You can still rest in my plans. You can still seek the, the total good of wherever you happen to be. And you can still seek me. That's the treasure that we call the gospel, right? The good news of uh, that God has given his son to give us purpose, freedom, and assurance. And we'll seek purpose apart from him, freedom apart from him, assurance, but we'll never finally get there. Now, let's say that you say, yeah, I'm taking in that living stream of water. I'm like, I've said yes to Jesus, and he's in my life. Of course, you no longer struggle with broken cisterns, right? And you, you've got it figured out. It's... One of the most striking uh, passages to me from this past week is in the book of 2 Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay. It's kind of a picture of a cistern. You've got cisterns, big ones, or you can even just like kind of smaller vessels that contain water. And the image, the picture here is that we, as God's people, are kind of like jars of clay. If you're going to construct something that is like really solid and is going to hold water really, really well... Would you get a little pottery together and put some water inside of it? Uh, here, here, just a jar of clay. I mean, I don't think so. You'd get some steel case and something with security systems that can't get in. Yeah, God has chosen to take us, jars of clay, fragile. We are fragile. Does anybody realize how fragile you are? And if, if, if you think you're not... Okay? It just takes one wrong turn on a highway, one drunk driver coming your way, and it's, you'll see just how fragile you are. I told, I, I told myself last night, I'm not going down that slip and slide. I've been there and done that too many times. My body doesn't respond the way it used to. But Olivia's so cute. <laughs> and she took my hand, and I went down, and I have a swollen right ankle. It's just, it's just, I knew it was going to happen. I can walk better today. I'm a jar of clay. I'm just, I'm so fragile. And that's not just physically, but let's face it, emotionally and mentally too. We are so fragile. And if we think we're not, it usually takes one event or see that we are. And that doesn't disqualify us. Actually, it's not until we realize that, that we qualify for the kingdom. That's what's so crazy about the gospel. Wynetta read it earlier. God didn't come for people who think they got it all together. Christ isn't sitting there eating with people who say, We've figured it all out. He comes for people who say, I'm a jar of clay. Are you sure you want to put this treasure in me? Yes. You're the perfect candidate. Because you know you're just a broken cistern. But those are the kind of people that I come and visit and hang out with and say, Let's do this living in exile together. And we'll, we'll make sure we don't waste any of it. Treasure and jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power, anything we happen to do that turns out to be actually <laughs> more than we could have expected on our own. What's that coming from? It belongs to God, not to us. We are part of that program. We matter. But at the end of the day, to God alone be the glory. He's the one. He's, we haven't saved ourselves. See, broken cisterns are the convincing ourselves that we can do it on our own. We can save ourselves. Until we say no, we realize we can't. Well, God's going to let us continue in that way. But once you say yes, then that power, any of it that we have, we're going to be able to say that God alone be the glory. That's what Paul said. If I'm going to boast in anything, it's not going to be in my academic accomplishments, my... Um, financial stability, my, you know, chiseled frame and 6 packs abs or anything, it's going to be in, in, the, in the cross of Christ. It's the only thing at the end of the day I have the glory in. And unfortunately, a lot of us don't get there until we're stripped of our self-reliance and say, I see I have nothing to add here. And then he refashions us in something new. It's not that we cease to be who we are, When we come to Christ and say I'm a jar of clay, it's that we truly become who he's created us to be. And now we have purpose, we have freedom, we have assurance, even if we're living in exile. And that seems to be the message that Jeremiah is saying to these people. Now, as we move forward and we continue on and we're going to get to Lamentations, I'm afraid there's not a lot of happiness in it. There is a lot of sadness and mourning. And part of Part of living in exile is embracing the sadness of where you are, learning to, to mourn. And that's okay. But God says, I'm not even wasting that. We can't, can't ignore it. We've got to do it. This too is for me. When we.